Well, good morning to you. Another incredible time of worship, Kevin. Thank you and all those who assist you every Sunday in leading us in this incredible time together. We're continuing this morning our study in the New Testament book of Philippians, a series entitled, Life Doesn't Have to Be Perfect to Be Wonderful. This morning we come to look together at the topic of worship, something that everybody seems to be talking about today. It's the hot topic in in many ways among church peoples, with some promoting one type of worship, others another type of worship, with each side usually insisting that their kind of worship is preferable. The fact is there's a lot of confusion And there's a lot of division about worship in the church today. Here in our own church, there's a wide variety of opinions and feelings about the topic. And because there are so many feelings and so many opinions about it, then the only safe place for us to go to try to find answers is here, in the pages of God's Word. Because contrary to what some people might say, The Word of God does tell us and tell us very clearly what true worship is. We won't find the answer to to worship in human reasoning because that's nothing really but somebody's opinion. And that's what's created a lot of division in the church over worship in the first place. Somebody's opinion. And so we want to avoid that this morning. We're going to come to look and see what God has to say by direct instruction, and also by examples this morning as we come to see if we can't understand together what true worship is. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Now, I realize we're skipping ahead a little bit. I'm not skipping these texts. I'm going to circle back around to them. I'm holding some of them for uh, some other opportunities like Graduate Recognition Sunday. As I, as I work through Philippians, sometimes the text will just grab me and say, you know, this is, this is really appropriate for this and this is appropriate for that. So I'm going to hold some of these texts for a little later, but we'll circle back around to them. But this morning, we're going to, we're going to begin by looking at the heart cry of true worship. The heart cry of true worship. And it's found for us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul writes and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, let me remind you, these are not the words of a man who is just trying to sound spiritual. This is a man who understands what true worship really is all about. You remember where Paul was, right, when he wrote these words? Prison, exactly. In a Roman prison on trial for his life. So if there was ever a time to not feel like worshiping, it would have been then. If there was ever a time to lose your excitement about God, it would have been Then, if there was ever a time when Paul's circumstances should have quenched 
the Spirit of God in his life, it was then because of what was going on around him and what was ahead of him. But Paul, writing from this prison cell, says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul found his joy where? In the Lord. So he could worship him. That's why he could worship. And I want to tell you this morning, when you come to worship, this is where you need to find your joy. And this is where I need to find my joy. You see, here's the secret. Write it down. Worship is not about what's going on around you. It is about what is going on inside of you. And so real worship, true worship, the heart cry of worship is rejoice in the Lord. It is not rejoice in the pastor. It is not rejoice in the choir. It is not rejoice in the music. It is not rejoice in the sermon. It is not rejoice in the crowd. Paul didn't have any of those things. But yet, he was worshiping. Church, true worship comes out of a heart and a spirit that has learned to rejoice in the Lord. He is the reason for our worship. He's the one we've got to focus on. He's the one we need to listen to. He's the one we need to respond to. Worship is about the Lord. And until you rejoice in the Lord, you will never truly worship. Until you're caught up in who He is, you'll never truly worship. Until you sit in His presence, you will never truly worship. Worship is not a celebration of church. It is not a celebration of who we are. That is not true worship. True worship is a celebration of who God is. Look at these verses here. I've listed quite a few of them for you. Psalm 29, 2, worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Psalm 27, 4, I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and I will seek Him in His temple. Psalm 30, verse 1, I will exalt you, O Lord. Psalm 25, 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Psalm 25, 15, my eyes are ever on the Lord. So I need to ask you this morning, and I need to ask myself, where are your eyes this morning? Where are they? Are they on the pastor? Are they on the people around you? Are they on the order of service? Are they on the music? What are you focused on? If your eyes this morning are on anything but the Lord, you will never truly worship. That's what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. That is the heart cry of all true worship. So please don't come in here with your eyes focused on anything except the Lord. 
Because if it's focused on anything else, you'll never worship. The hard cry of genuine worship is rejoice in the Lord. But there's always a threat to that, true worship. Always a threat to it. Something that can cause us to take our eyes off of the Lord and put it on something else instead. And we need to know what that is because Paul gives us a grave warning about it. So let's look at this threat to true worship. Kind of a strange verse here in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3, but let me try to explain it. We'll see if we can understand what Paul is talking about here. After he says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord, verse 1, verse 2, he says this, look out for the dogs. <laughs> look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, let me tell you what Paul's talking about here. In Paul's day, there were a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers claimed to be Christians. They claimed to believe in Jesus Christ. But the Judaizers believed you could not be a good Christian until you had first become a good Jew. In other words, it wasn't enough to just believe in Jesus. You also had to keep every one of the Jewish laws, the Sabbath laws, the dietary laws, the laws about circumcision. This is why Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. They had become so obsessed with these external signs, including circumcision. So let me tell you some things about the Judaizers. You can fill in the blanks here to help you. Among other things, they were legalist. They were legalist. Legalism happens when you substitute rules, regulations, ritual, personal opinion for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Judaizers were focused on ritual and tradition. That was their focus. They didn't care about the depth of someone's relationship with Christ. They didn't care about if someone was genuinely worshiping the Lord Jesus. They wanted to know, are you doing it this way? Are you keeping this rule? Are you following this command, this tradition? And those rules, regulations, and rituals became so important that they began to take the place of a real relationship with Christ. Substance was found in the way someone did things. And whenever Paul ran across the Judaizers, anytime he ran across them, he got, I don't hesitate to say that he got furious. He didn't call them very complimentary names, as you can see here in verse 2. These are some of the strongest words that that, that are used anywhere in the New Testament. And Paul uses them on the Judaizers because these folks were completely wrong. They had not only lost the true meaning of worship, but they were beginning to lead other people away from true worship. Now, we don't have the Judaizers around today. 
But we still have to be very, very careful that we don't fall into legalism. We have to be very, very careful that rules, regulations, ritual, tradition do not become more important than our or somebody else's relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to constantly guard against this because it can absolutely destroy a true spirit of worship. Did you know that what passes for worship in some places today may not be acceptable at all in the eyes of the Lord Jesus? I want you to look with me at a critical dialogue here about worship in Matthew chapter 15. Let's, let's, let's look at this together. Let me try to walk us through it, see if we can understand what's going on here. Now, Jesus was having a running dialogue with the super legalists of his day, the Pharisees. And so they were, they were in this conversation. The Pharisees did not like the carefree, joyful way that Jesus lived his life and his disciples lived his life. Remember, they were all about rules. They were all about regulation. They were all about tradition. So they didn't like what they saw in Jesus and his followers. So they asked Jesus a question in Matthew chapter 15, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now let me, let me translate that for you, okay? Here's the translation of that. Why do you break the command, excuse me, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? What they were really saying is, why don't you do things the way we've always done them? That's what they're asking. Why don't you do things the way we've always done them? Now, <laughs> there are a lot of things Jesus would take. There are a lot of things that Jesus would, would give people grace on, but not here. He turns right around after they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Jesus turns around and says, let me ask you a question. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, let me give you the translation here. Why do you put the how of worship before the who of worship? That's what he was saying. How dare you put the how of worship before the who of worship? And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And they have a little bit more dialogue, and Jesus comes on down to verses 8 and 9 there, and he says this, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Why? Because their teachings are merely human rules. Here's the translation. Worship is not about what I do. It is about what God does. Worship is about not what I do. It is about what God does. It's not found in the order of service. It is not found in the style of music. It is not found in the eloquence of the sermon. Folks, if that's what stirs us up, we have missed it because that is not what true worship is about. 
Worship is about seeking the Lord. Worship is about living for His glory. Worship is about sitting His presence, sitting in His presence. It is about being energized by His power. It is about experiencing His glory. And we must not let ritual replace the reality of a relationship in worship. We cannot let the how of worship become more important than the who of worship. So how do you guard against that? Well, Paul tells us very clearly, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he's going to begin giving us some characteristics of true worship, things we can do to guard against the how of worship becoming more important than the who of worship. Let's look at them quickly this morning. Number one, Paul tells us that true worship is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, the first couple of parts, Paul says, For we are the true circumcision. Now remember, he had called the Judaizers mutilators of the flesh. They insisted on circumcision because it was part of the the how. This is what you must do. You must follow this rule. You must do it this way. Paul says, no, 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 no. We are the true circumcision. Why? Because we worship by the Spirit of God. True worship is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not inspired by me. It's not inspired by Kevin or Scott or the choir. It's not inspired by any of the elements in a worship service. Those things are great worship tools. I love them. I love the way God uses those things in our corporate gatherings. But they're not the inspiration for worship. The inspiration for worship is the Holy Spirit of God. Man, you can have the finest music. You can have the best message ever. You can have an incredible atmosphere for worship. But listen to me, if the Holy Spirit is not free to move in your heart and in your life, if He is not able to do what He wants to do and needs to do in you this morning, if there are attitudes there, if there are actions there in your life or in this church that quench the Spirit of God, you can forget about true worship. Just forget about it. Because worship is not inspired by anything external. It is inspired by the movement and the working of the Holy Spirit of God in your life and in my life. Now, if you turn to John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation here with uh, a woman The woman at the well, we know the story well. Most of us do. And so in this dialogue with this woman, this Samaritan woman, uh, she wanted to argue about a lot of things, but one of the things she wanted to argue about is how and where a person ought to worship God. So begin reading with me here at verse 20, and, and we'll work our way through there. She says to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Okay, she was all concerned about the externals of worship here. She was concerned about a particular place, a particular way of doing things, an external factor. Why don't you look at Jesus' response? Jesus declared, 
Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So the question this morning is, is your spirit in tune with God's spirit? Is the Holy Spirit doing in you, and is he free to do in you this morning, what he wants to do and needs to do? Is the truth of his word able to penetrate into your heart and into your life? Because unless the spirit of God is at work within you this morning, you're just going through the motions, my friend. I'm just going through the motions. We're just putting on a show. We're just living out of sham because God work, God's word says, and it says very clearly here, here, that the true worshipers are those who worship by the spirit of God. True worship is inspired always by the Holy Spirit and not by anything else. Secondly, Paul goes on in verse 3 to tell us that true worship is focused on Jesus Christ. For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's already said that at verse 1 when he said, Rejoice in the Lord, but we need to hear it again. We glory in Jesus Christ. Not in the how of worship, not in the form of worship, but in the who of worship. Not in the style of the music, not in the size of the crowd, not in the order of service, not in the eloquence of the sermon. Let, let, me, let, me, um, let me let you in on a secret this morning, a couple of them as a matter of fact. If your focus in worship is on anything but Jesus, then you will likely never worship. You will likely never worship. Because there'll be times when you don't like the music. We've all got our preferences. There'll be times when you don't like the music. There'll be times when it's not a great sermon. There'll be times when the crowd is low. Okay? So if these are the things you choose to glory in, you fill in this blank, all right? Whatever you choose to glory in is what you choose to worship. So if you glory in the music, my friend, that's what you're worshiping. You're worshiping a style of music, a type of worship. If you're glorying in the pastor, the preacher, the sermon, then that's what you're worshiping. We are here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and no one and no thing else. True worshipers say, I rejoice in the Lord. I glory in Christ Jesus. And listen, when you do that, you will worship. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what's going on around you, it will be what's going on inside of you that will make the difference. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, focused on Jesus Christ. Number three, true worship is motivated by my own sense of need. My own sense of need. Again, verse 3, 
we're the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Church, true worship can only begin when you realize you have a need. When I realize I have a need. True worship can only happen when we come to the point of realizing there's not one thing we can do that will make us worthy to stand in the presence of a holy God and worship Him. Nothing. Paul understood that. I mean, if, if anybody could have stood before God, proud of who he was as a religious person, it would have been Paul. Have you read this guy's resume? Verses 4 through 6, I don't have them written out there, but let's look at them now. Paul said if anybody had confidence to, uh, in, in the flesh and what he's been able to do, if anyone else thinks he has reason, I have more. And he goes on to list these things. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Do you see that word? <laughs> blameless. Some translations say faultless. Paul kept all the rules. He followed all the rituals. He was the most religious person of his day. But then he met Jesus. And then he says in verses 7 and 9, look at them. But Christ has shown me that what I once thought was valuable is worthless. I could not make myself acceptable to God by obeying the law of Moses. And, and you can't make yourself acceptable to God by keeping rules, by keeping regulations, by living according to some kind of tradition, by, by trying to be super spiritual. No, none of that. None of that works. Paul said, I've learned. Christ has shown me that the how of worship is worthless. It is the who of worship. And if Paul had to, had to recognize that he couldn't make himself acceptable to God, then my friend, neither can you and neither can I. True worshipers understand there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Nothing we can do that will give us points with God. So true worshipers come to worship with a great awareness of their need. They don't come and say, I don't need to be changed. I don't need to learn anything new. This is for somebody else. God doesn't need to do something new in my life. He doesn't need to change my attitude about this or that. No. True worshipers come and say, God, I know I'm not what I need to be. So whatever you want to do in my life today, God, do it. That's a true worshiper. Boy, the best illustration of this I know is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Let me read it to you. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were doing it the right way. 
and treated others who did it a different way with contempt. I'm burdened this morning, so I'm just going to go ahead and say this. There have been some people in this church who have been treated with contempt because they worship different than other people. That is wrong. It is dead wrong. That's what's happening here. Treated with contempt. Here's why. Look, Look at this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, that was his attitude. I got it all together. God doesn't need to do anything in my life. I can look down on other people that do it differently than I do. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're here this morning, my friend, without a sense of need, If you're here this morning thinking God couldn't possibly need to do a work in your life, then you'll never worship. True worshipers acknowledge their need. Why? Because that's when God can begin to move. That's when God can begin to do things. So let's look in closing at the goal of true worship. Verse 10, Paul says, for my determined purpose. Here's the goal. My determined purpose is that I may know Christ. That I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding Him more strongly and more clearly. Church, the number one goal in worship is not to enjoy yourself. It is not to have some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. That's okay. All right, I I, I like that. But here's the secret. And, and, And this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. I realize. But the goal of true worship is not about feeling good. It is about knowing Christ. I've had people come up and say, boy, I really feel good after that worship. Well, that's that's fine. that's, That's fine. I understand that. But it's not about feeling good. It's about knowing Christ. It's about growing in your relationship with Him. It's about becoming more like Him. Paul said in... In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do you see that? What's your spiritual act of worship here, according to Paul? 
He's not coming to some corporate worship service. It's it's totally committing yourself to, to God. It's totally giving yourself to Christ, not just on Sunday, but every single day. And the great tragedy of the church in America today is that we have people coming to corporate worship who have no personal commitment, so the church isn't the dynamic powerhouse it's supposed to be because we're not the dynamic committed Christians God demands that we become. That's true worship. It's not singing a bunch of songs. It's not praying a bunch of prayers. It's not listening to a bunch of sermons. Real worship, true worship, is absolutely selling out to Jesus Christ. It is giving everything to Him. It is becoming a living sacrifice. That's what Paul meant here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, where he said, I want to share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. <laughs> That's real worship. And that's not always about feeling good, having a warm feeling. Sometimes it means being afraid. Sometimes it means being uncomfortable. Sometimes it means having your sins exposed. Sometimes it means being challenged in a way that you've never been challenged before. But it always means becoming more like Christ. Sharing even in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That's the goal of true worship. I ran across this somebody wrote the other day. Let me just read it. Worship is not motivation, entertainment, personal taste, musical style, comfort zones, prejudices, never changing or ever changing. Met expectations, being fed, or meeting with the congregation in the auditorium, the worship center, or sanctuary. Worship is, Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Worship is not prelude, postlude, invocation, invitation, benediction, offertory, meditation, special music, choral anthem, call to worship, Bible reading, or sermon. Worship is, again according to Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O Lord you will not despise. Worship is not Sunday bulletin, order of worship, announcements, testimonies, organ, keyboard, guitar, drums, choir, hymns, choruses, contemporary music, classical music, traditional worship, gospel songs. Worship is... God has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I want to close by reading a final quote from Warren Wiersbe's little book entitled Real Worship. This is what he has to say. If you want to pursue a true and meaningful worship experience, don't expect much encouragement from the average church member. True worship examines and exposes the depth of our being. God helps us see our true motives and values. In worship, God calls us to wholeness, but first He must reveal our brokenness and our blemishes. He calls us to spiritual health, but first He must expose our 
wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, according to Isaiah 1.6. And we can't go anywhere else for a second opinion. In short, it's a dangerous thing to return to spiritual worship. It means the end of the personality cults that have invaded the church. It means the end of Christian consumerism that has so ravaged and twisted our sense of spiritual values. I have no doubt that the church that returns to real worship will lose many people, maybe important people, and may even have to make drastic cuts in the budget. But then something wonderful would happen. A beautiful new sense of spiritual reality would emerge with people glorifying God instead of praising one another. There would be a new unity among God's people and the divisive spirit of competitiveness would gradually vanish. Nobody would be going around asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They'd be interested only in serving one another and reaching their world for Jesus. If we all returned to real worship, there would be a new power in prayer and a new attention to the Word. Families would pray together and do so joyfully. Marriages would be mended. Satan would be defeated in his attempts to destroy God's work and God's church. This is not to suggest that all of our problems will be solved and that the kingdom would be established on earth. Instead, we would face a whole new set of problems. But they would be caused by the expansion of spiritual ministry and not the expression of carnal Christians. Many of the divisive problems in the church today aren't caused by spiritual growth and development. They're caused by carnal, worldly people, including church leaders, who stand in the way of true spiritual growth. Ministers and church officers have to spend so much time running around putting out brush fires that they have little time left for the work of the ministry. And we've accepted this sick situation as normal. Why? Because we've been away from the bright light of true worship for so long that we can no longer see clearly and honestly evaluate our own situation. Our measurements for ministry and for spiritual success are so unbiblical that we're leading one another astray without even realizing it. We're like the pilot who announced from the cockpit, folks, we're lost, but we're making really good time. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you. I don't want that to be us. The time is too critical. The need is too urgent. And the days are too short for us to be doing anything except engaging in true, genuine worship together as the people of God. Are you ready to worship? I hope so. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this call back to real worship, what it is, what it means, the difference it should be making in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we have allowed the how of worship to become more important than the who of worship. 
Forgive us when we have gloried in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us when we have been inspired by anything other than your Holy Spirit. And return us, God, to that bright, white, hot light of genuine worship so that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter the pressures, no matter the pain, no matter the circumstances, we, like Paul, can say when it's all said and done in the final analysis, I Rejoice in the Lord. And I want to know Him. The power of His resurrection. And what it means to share even in His sufferings that I might become more like Him. So today, Father, I, I recognize my own need. I ask forgiveness for looking on with contempt at anyone who does it differently than I do. And I come in humble and honest confession of my sin and I ask you, Lord, to do a new work in me today that I might become a worshiper who worships you in spirit and in truth so that I may go out, so that we may go out of this place so people on mission with you. It's the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me in standing? We're going to sing together this morning. Uh, just short chorus. These altars are open if you need to come. You say, God, just <laughs> make me a true worshiper who worships you in spirit and truth. Keep my eyes focused on Christ. Keep the Holy Spirit working in my life. Keep me aware of my own needs so that you can take me and do what you want to do in me and then use me to do what you want to do through me in my community, in my nation, and among the nations. If you need to come this morning at that point or if you don't know Christ this morning, you can't worship Him because you don't know Him in your heart of hearts. We'll be glad to share with you this morning how you can come and be part of the family of God, how Christ can become Lord and Savior of your life, how you can have your sins forgiven. How you can receive God's gift of eternal life. How you can know that you know that you know that you're going to spend all of eternity with Him in His presence after this earth is over. Or whatever else God's leading you. Do you want to unite with this church family? This is the time we're providing you with. These altars are open. I'm here if I can pray with you as we sing right now. Would you come?